0: Good afternoon, this is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's another episode of the ABCs of Biodiversity Today, our ongoing series where we explore why biodiversity loss is our loss. Now, coral reefs are the ocean's most biodiverse ecosystems. They provide food, coastal protection and income for many people across the world and of course right here in Malaysia too. But in a recent article in Makaranga, marine ecologist Sebastian Serradoi has warned that a lack of action and funding will ring the death knell for coral Coral Reefs in the Face of Warming Seas. With most attention focused on the climate crisis, are we forgetting the parallel biodiversity crisis we are also facing? So today I'm going to speak to Sebastian and also Natasha Zuleika. They are both co-founders of the organisation Coral Coup about their collective mission to fight the global decline of coral reefs and why coral reefs are an essential ecosystem to this planet and why their loss is so detrimental to us all. Welcome both of you. How are you today?
1: I'm good, Julia.
0: Thank you for having us. Pleasure. Hi, hi, Sebastian. Thank you so much for joining me, both of you. Lovely to have you both on the show. Um, so yes, of course, as I mentioned, this is a series where we want to get to the one-on-ones of, you know, um, uh, you know, all our different biodiversity here. But before we do that, can I get a quick introduction to Coral Coo? Tell me a little bit about the work that you guys do. I know you're a social enterprise for coral reef restoration and conservation.
1: Yep, that's basically what we are officially registered as, but um, we're actually established in 2019. So Coral Ku emerged out of a pursuit to restore degraded coral reef sites in the northeastern peninsula Malaysia, or, or Trenganu specifically. And basically, we had this desire for action to speak louder than words. So it started out with some coral and bleaching surveys around the island um, to find out what is out there and what's actually happening, uh, because there's surprisingly, there's not enough data in the region for us to know. Um, But also, as collaborations grew overseas, um, we saw the opportunity to kind of grow through coral restoration. So that's essentially what coral... Cool does in
0: Lang Okay, so Lang Tengah, so you're up uh, up in the East Coast, right? So yep. talk to me a little bit about uh, the folks behind the team. I mentioned the both of you are co-founders, uh, and I believe there's a whole mix of people with different sort of um,
1: expertise in the group. Yeah, so the, the thing with Kool is we survive or thrive with um, collaborations. Uh, so Sebastian and I are the co-founders. Sebastian does the science bits, and I do the comms and social media. Uh, we've got some good friends as field assistants that come uh, to the island, help us out with a lot of our work. Uh, Summer Bay Resort is a key collaborator, as they support us with our diving needs, and we also have collaborators from Australia, Florida, Germany, and University of Malaya here.
0: Okay, all right. So there's a, there's a nice mix of people there, and you know yeah. you
1: yeah, and you
0: mentioned your flagship project is based in Pulau Langtenga. Uh Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so uh, Pula Tengah is kind of like the lesser known island, if you ask any average Malaysian. But it's uh, the reason why it's called Langtanga, it's called the eagle in the middle. So it's between Pula Perhentian and Pula Redang, right. the two very touristy islands, right? Yeah. So Langtanga is actually quite small, it's about 2.5 kilometers ish stretch. And uh, Samabi Resort is the main resort lah, that's um, uh, operating there. Mm-hmm. So it has the the Interesting thing about Pulau Langkawi is that it has a unique um, landscape. So it has a range of reefs that look pretty healthy, um, some reefs that need help, and <laughs> and also reefs that are you know barely there. So this is important for us in terms of like uh, scientific monitoring to see coral reef health at different stages, <laughs> and also in terms of scale. Um, Coral restoration is actually quite an expensive venture but Pulau Langtena allows us to experiment this at an affordable scale and it's also a marine park so um, it was a quite unique um, island for us to be at and to start work.
0: Mm, okay, yeah, because you know, I, was, I was looking through your website and I saw that map that you guys have of uh, reef restoration and degradation, right? You've nicely mapped it out where there's degraded reef, where there's high conservation value reef and also restoration area. So that's where you guys are kind of working. Am yeah. I correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. All right. Excellent. And and maybe I can talk to you, Sebastian, about this. You know, we did kick off the month of June with World Reef Awareness Day. Um, Maybe we can do a quick 101 on coral reefs. You know, what are corals? What are reefs? You know, just get to the basics of it.
2: Yes. So I like to answer this question quite a lot because people are often confused whether corals are animals or whether they are plants, actually.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I like to put it in a kind of romanticized way because... The corals are animals that live in a symbiosis with an algae, which of course is a plant. And together they build these uh, rock houses, which then um, eventually over time turns into the reef. But if you take it a bit more sciencey, a reef, um, geologically speaking, um, is, a, is a structure that is wave resistant and um, extends over a particular area and many many animals actually do form reefs so we have oyster reefs for example Um, and coral reefs um, to wrap up this 101 are reefs made of um, mainly hard corals but of course there's many other organisms as well found in reefs which then turns into that huge complexity into that huge variety of life and diversity Mm -hmm. and um, they are basically this beautiful belt that stretches around um, the equator uh, all the way up onto the su- uh, subtropics 30 degrees north and south um, so they're really restricted in their spatial distribution but you can find them all around the world if you stay within that 30 degrees north and south kind of like this jewel um, belt wrapping mm-hmm. the world's ocean And, yeah, reefs are very important for us. I think we're going to talk about that as well. And they're just really this beautiful space underwater, kind of this perfect mess. Um, And my favorite fun fact, the only animals that form structures so large that you can see them from space, for instance, the Great Bear Reef in Australia. That's
0: right. Okay, all right, excellent. That's a lovely picture that you painted there, and you know another very, I guess, beautiful description of them is that they are the rainforests of the ocean, right? And why are they considered such biodiversity hotspots?
1: Let's zoom into the word biodiversity. So a lot there's a misconception that if there's you can see something a lot in volume, mm. um, that you know it's um, it's healthy, it's biodiverse, but actually biodiversity means abundance and variety. So just like how forests host a variety of species, like from the um, bacteria, the fungi, little insects to larger mammals, coral reefs host about the same variety, if not more. Mm. So if you're a scuba diver, you've got people crazy about macro life. And these are (laughs) essentially tiny, tiny things that you can, it's really difficult to spot. So like nudibranch, sea slugs crabs, like decorator crabs, or utan crabs, shrimps, mantis shrimps, all I can, the list can go on. <laughs> but, you know, essentially, um, this is why it's considered like a hotspot because these um, animals, these wildlife, essentially exist around coral reefs and without the reefs, they won't be there. Okay, all right. and, and I, Yes, go ahead, Sebastian.
2: Uh, sorry to jump in, but I must also add that we are still uncovering so much of this biodiversity, actually, um, even in Pulau Langtenga, we came across um, a coral that we thought was a coral that has been described and um, just last year I came across a scientific paper where some scientists um, found a similar looking coral a bit further up north from um, peninsula in Taiwan and also Japan. And um, I went back on my pictures and I saw that coral, and I was like, all right, this might be a new species. So we actually started to look into that a bit and um, we might be on the verge of um, finding yet another species. And so it's it's just really, it's really quite mesmerizing that we don't really understand biodiversity. um, And yet we are already fighting to, to kind of save it.
0: I know that's it's, it's yeah it's, it's so depressing isn't it um there's so much that we don't know that we don't know about yet right and we're losing the chance to actually discover it because of all these uh these issues um okay but before we get to that i mean another important thing about coral reefs of course is that they serve uh, as part of the food chain right they provide shelter for animals um, they're key indicators of overall ocean health am i correct maybe you can elaborate on those points as well
1: Yeah, that's essentially what the role of an ecosystem does, right? So Every ecosystem has a very delicate balance of who eats what and how much of it. And every ecologist or biologist believes that every single organism has its own role to play. We might not know exactly what the role is, but it has... It's important in maintaining this balance, and this balance once it's disrupted, and this is when we start to lose the function of these ecosystems, and potentially could see a collapse. Just like how we can't even, you know, um, predict that there's still undescribed species out there, mm-hmm. we can predict what these collapses would do, but we have no idea what the long-term consequences um, would be. And you know, to add on to that, they might be irreversible. So. Yeah, I would say that these, as long as you know, food chains and you know, you see um, young fish in coral reefs, and that would be like a good indicator. But something for us to look out for is you know things that we're not even aware of yet, because it's such an intricate balance of you know relationships.
0: Okay, uh, Sebastian, anything you wanted to add to that?
2: Well, the on on the consequences, um, Tasha just mentioned that these changes might be irreversible, which is very true. Um, we unfortunately see that quite a lot in Peninsula Malaysia. And um, because you see reefs that are very degraded and they leave behind a rubble field. Um, so that is that coral material that eventually breaks and falls onto the ground. Mm. And once a reef is in that stage, you can't, we don't really have yet the knowledge to, to reverse that change. Um, although there's certain techniques that could be applied, but they're very um, expensive. But also just in terms of biodiversity, um, we need to remind ourselves that if we we take out the most um, biodiverse ecosystem in the ocean, that has great consequences all across the food chain. And um, the oceans are, I like to look at them as this this, um, connected ecosystem. Like if you take the globe and you flip it upside down and you stare at it from, uh, from above so you will be looking at antarctica you actually see that all the oceans are tremendously connected to each other mm-hmm. so it, it would have this um this trickle down effect on every other ecosystem as well um, so that's very important to remember in this discussion
0: all right and you know it's, it's interesting that you mentioned about that interconnectedness right because reefs are also consi- coral reefs are also considered a litmus test for the overall health of our seas and oceans am i correct
2: um, yes, I know. I mean, we do use that term a lot. Um, by we I mean the the coral scientists and people who fight for, for coral conservation. Uh-huh. Um yes, yes, they're very sensitive to climate change. They're definitely one of the first ecosystems out there that are experiencing incredible um damages due to to, to the changing climate and the warming seas, but also um we kind of Forget that many other ecosystems also in the oceans are really suffering at this uh, point. For instance, um, kelp forests, um, which are more temperate um, ecosystems, for instance, um, in front of the California coastline. And I think it was last, last year or two years ago, there was a massive heat wave in Canada mm. where a few billion oysters died, which are very important for water quality. Um, they, they clean the water essentially, which then obviously kind of stabilizes the ecosystem that is around them, um, and and those ecosystems are also tremendously um, endangered and have suffered from climate change consequences. But quarries are definitely sort of this symbol of climate change and the oceans.
0: Okay. Alright, okay. Um, let's just go for one quick break, guys. When we come back, let's talk a little bit more about those threats uh, you know, that coral reefs face. I'm speaking today to Sebastian Saradoy and also Nat- Natasha Zuleika. They are co-founders of Coral Coo. Coral Coup is, of course, a, uh, and a, a social enterprise for coral reef restoration and conservation. It's another episode of the ABCs of Biodiversity and we're talking about coral reefs today. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Julia Jacobs. It's another episode of the ABCs of Biodiversity, our ongoing series where we explore why biodiversity loss is our loss. And today we're exploring how coral reefs are really essential for um, our survival. Helping me to explain why coral reefs are so important are Sebastian Serradoi and Natasha Zulaika. They are both co-founders of Coral Coup, which is a social enterprise for coral reef restoration and conservation. So before the break, guys, we were talking a little bit about, you know, 101 on coral reefs: Why they're so important. Um, let's talk a little bit about the threats. So we've, I think we've heard so many of the world scientists and the top scientists saying that climate change is making irreversible changes to the world's coral reefs. Um, yeah, maybe you'd like to explain or expand on that for us.
2: Yes, um, it's definitely something that um, we are very concerned about as, as a coral reef community and as scientists as well. Um, Because what happens is that the oceans are absorbing most of the carbon dioxide that we pump out into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And to take that thought actually one step further is that um, because of the oceans taking up so much carbon dioxide, even if we would stop today um, pumping out all this CO2 into the atmosphere, the oceans would continue for quite a a few more years, Um, I'm I'm speaking about decades right now, Mm -hmm. to to absorb that carbon dioxide, which ultimately means the oceans will continue to heat up um, for the next 30 to 50 years or even longer, depending on how we tackle our emissions. And this heating is is without any doubt, um, you hear scientists argue about a lot of things um, such as what statistical model to use, how to describe a particular term, which survey method is the best suited, but you don't hear scientists um, debate the consequences of of climate change uh, on coral reefs, uh, the impacts and the heating of the oceans. And this heating then eventually results in um, the symbiotic relationship between the coral animal and the algae sort of disrupt. And that disruption, if it continues for an extended period, I'm speaking about weeks at a time, or maybe even a few months in severe cases, um, sort of stars the coral of the essential um, nutrients, energy that it gets from the algae um, because the algae is doing for the synthesis and provides up to 90% of, of the energy budget that the coral needs to survive, grow, reproduce. Mm-hmm. And if that is interrupted, then we see coral bleaching and coral bleaching is, is what we are so concerned about because it usually happens on a big scale um, if temperatures rise uh, beyond that um, threshold. So essentially, it's like, to put it simple, corals are suffering from fever. And just like humans, we have a physiological limit. And if we continue to exceed that, obviously there will be repercussions.
0: Okay. And and um, you, you want to expand on those those repercussions. So you, you've talked to us about, you know, what coral bleaching is, what's causing it. Uh, what does it actually mean to the corals? What
2: happens? Um, yeah. So once, once the temperatures rise above that physiological threshold. Then we do see that corals turn white. So that's where the term bleaching comes from. Mm -hmm. And um, to just kind of put it into an example, in 2019, we had a heat wave in uh, Terengganu. And just one morning I went out for a swim. I thought it would be a lovely day to go out for a morning swim. And I put on my goggles, I went out, I swam around the corner and, and everything was white. It wasn't the first time that I was witnessing that. So I immediately kind of knew what was happening. And um, so that, yeah, so that coral bleaching, um, the the coral is in a state of severe stress. Um, Coral bleaching also happens naturally from a variety of causes. But again, when we see coral bleaching on a massive scale, so across hundreds of kilometers, for instance, or in the case of the Great Bear Reef or the Caribbean or In other locations around the world, this can even exceed thousands of kilometers. Um, We had three, uh, what we call, pan-tropical bleaching events, so all around that um, coral belt that I was talking about earlier, so everywhere in the tropics, in 1998, in 2010, and from 2014 until 2016. So that's why I also said that there's really no debate on, on what the impacts are of climate change on ocean warming and that ocean warming translating further into coral bleaching. And with ongoing heat stress and severe mortality, um, you just see that the coral ecosystem collapses. And when the corals die, you, a bit later on, you kind of see the fish lose their habitat. That reduces the biodiversity, reduces the esthetical value of the reef. It reduces the coastal protection of the reef. So we lose all of the major ecosystem services due to coral bleaching. And in some cases, those changes can't be reversed because you see that after bleaching event, there's a change in species as well. So that is also something that's very important to understand that even when reefs recover, the question is, how do they recover? Do they return to their original assemblage or or is there a change in species? Do those species have the same sort of functional quality So there's a lot of things happening after a coral bleaching event, which is why why it's so important to understand them a bit better as well, also in Malaysia.
0: And, you know, you mentioned uh, Trunganu, right? And uh, there have been some occurrences in peninsular Malaysia of these sort of mass uh, bleaching events. Am I correct in saying that? Um, Any that, you know, you can elaborate on from, I suppose, recent times?
2: Yes. So um, 1998 was technically the first major bleaching event that scientists were able to observe all across the tropics and it also happened in peninsular Malaysia but um, we don't really have a lot of data of that event in 1998 but we do know that there was that there was widespread bleaching across the peninsula and also in Sabah and Sarawak but we don't really know what species how severe it was in on, on a reef scale. So was it worse in Johor or was it worse in Terengganu? We, we don't really know that. And then came 2010, which um, so far was the most intense bleaching event in peninsula Malaysia, at least. Mm. And we have a couple of scientific um, studies, um, mo- mostly around Tioman and uh, some in Terengganu um, that actually give us a better picture on how, how intense that bleaching event has been. But what is also really scary. Um, so we had Um, marine heat waves in 1998 that resulted in bleaching, but also in 2010. But then came some minor events in 2014, and then again in 2016, there was heat stress, Mm -hmm. but apparently there wasn't any bleaching, um, neither in Southern Peninsula, Malaysia, and also not in Terengganu. I was actually on site by that time. And then came 2019 and 2020. So I think we can tell the trend, right? 1998, 2010, 2014, 2016, 2019, and 2020. So that is is why we are so concerned as well, because um, those gaps are really shrinking away between one heat stress event um, to the other. And that also has um, important consequences.
0: And and can these corals sort of survive or recover from a bleaching event, especially if it's a situation where you say, you know, that they're facing back-to-back bleaching episodes. So like, you know, here we had 2019, 2020, and I, uh, you know, where a significant percentage of the reef was killed off. I remember this happened uh, to the Great Barrier Reef, uh, what was it, 2015, 2016, like that?
2: The Great Barrier Reef has become a symbol of climate change in action in Australia, actually, um, exactly because of the, the reasons that you are mentioning. Um, over there, it's actually even worse than it is in in Malaysia, because um, the Great Bay Reef suffered from bleaching in 1998, I think in 2002, in 2016, 2017, 2020, and earlier this year in 2022. So it has seen six mass bleaching events and um, is it, yeah, I think five over the past six years. So that is insane, really. It's it's just absolutely crazy. And yes, um, there's always a, a, a difference in mortality um, because you're asking if if um, the reef can survive those back-to-back beaching events. Yeah. Yes, they can. But again, we the Great Barrier Reef is also a really well-documented place for such studies because um, um, the Australian Institute of Marine Science and various universities are always on site. And actually the best coral bleaching science that we have is mostly coming out from from Australia. So, but what what the scientists there are saying that, yes, in 2016, we had major mortality and 2017 heat stress was even worse, but mortality and bleaching overall was a bit less. But what they pointed out is that actually that was also because many of the sort of weak coral individuals, they had already died off in 2016 and, and therefore, the cores that were still there, they were more tolerant. So mm-hmm. there is such thing as heat tolerance. And yes, cores can survive heat waves, but it depends on, on a lot of factors. And it doesn't mean that the value, in terms of the ecological value, but also the functional value for, for us um, as, human, uh, as humans and for our societies and economies is the same. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's something that we also are still trying to understand, like um, especially in Australia, again, in 2020 came a heat wave. The scientists were again there, they, they studied it, and they found different, what they called spatial footprints, so they made these beautiful maps of the Great Bear Reef, where there was heat stress, where there was bleaching, how severe the mortality was, and it's, it's a very intricate, as a very dynamic and intricate um, ecological event, but it's definitely very bad for corals, there's no doubt about that, there's nothing good. Um, when there's coral bleaching. And even if there's heat stress and the corals don't bleach, it's kind of like having a mild fever. It's, it's not a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's important to sort of never forget in this debate that um, if you constantly stress an the ecosystem, there are so many other things that are happening that we don't even understand because it's such a biodiverse ecosystem, after all. And we can't study every single species. And it's just very hard to determine all these impacts as well.
0: Okay. All right. And, you know, we've heard some naysayers saying that, oh, you know, this is just happening because of natural cycles. You know, it's not actually a direct consequence of climate change and global warming. Uh, You know, climate change is not a major trigger here. Uh, How would you respond to that?
1: Well, yeah, people always say, I mean, I have to agree that climate change is a trigger. But what causes that change to happen so quickly? Yeah. Do you stop to ask like, yes, this happened naturally, but at what scale? How long did it take for this to happen naturally? And um, it's, it's us, it's us that's speeding up this process. And like Sebastian said earlier, um, the differences when uh, coral bleaching happened naturally is um, that the gaps in time and also the scale of what is bleached. Um, is different and they would have this time um, to kind of like grow and recover again. So, yeah, you can say that it happens naturally. I I won't deny that, but you have to understand that we are the ones who are speeding up this process and that is causing the trouble.
2: I really like this question, actually. It's one of the best questions that people can ask um, in terms of like climate change and isn't it all natural and all of that? Um, Because, yeah, the climate has been changing throughout the Earth's history many times before, but the speed of it is just really mind blowing because if you look at any curve, um, any graph, really, and you kind of see how the temperatures in the atmosphere are climbing, that's really scary. But if you look at how the temperature budgets in the oceans are just really rising rapidly since the 1950s, um, that's very, very severe. Like you you can tell that um, something is happening because um, never throughout the history of the oceans and the planet have we seen such warming. And to put an accurate number on this, in Langtenga, since 1985, we have a pretty good access to satellite data that monitors sea surface temperatures. um, So we can go back almost 40 years in times. And between 1985 and 2020, the um, seas surrounding Langtanga have warmed by 0.6 degrees. Mm-hmm. Now 0.6 may not sound like a lot to, to most people, but actually to have an increase in average temperatures of 0.6 degrees in less than 40 years, that's very scary. And this is not the whole warming. So we also, in, I think the oceans at this moment have already warmed by 1.2 degrees since the industrial revolution. Um, And most of that warming happened since the 1950s, actually. Um, So that needs to be kept in mind, that that speed is really quite tremendous and visible, even if you just look at a a simple graph.
0: Yeah, so it's the speed at which it's happening, isn't it? Um, And uh, this other thing that I was reading, uh, and it was from a while ago, but one scientist uh, was quoted in an article as saying that And I'm quoting here, while it's true that many reefs being monitored are deteriorating rapidly, many of the world's reefs are not monitored at all. So in essence, he was saying that the problem is not as catastrophic as it's being painted out. Um, How would you respond to that?
2: I would say the statement is correct. Yes, many reefs are not monitored at all. Um, Langtenga, uh, our little location, we arrived there and we, I think we did the first coral surveys back in 2017. And uh, back then there was hardly there was almost no data available mm-hmm. on that thing. And we started serving. And what, what we found is that we had um, a couple of resites with about, about 70% core cover. So that is considered quite a lot. And we have core reset with less than 10% core cover if you just go on to the other side of the island. So it is sort of a, a, a how should I best put it? It's not really saying that statement is true in itself that many reefs are not monitored but if you would monitor them it doesn't mean that they would be in a fantastic condition mm-hmm. and there are a lot of reefs out there that are still in good condition but um, one study for instance um, sort of looked into how much of the world reefs has been have been affected just by, um, by climate change and warming oceans and the number is basically every single reef site. And you can tell that even if you just look at um, a satellite map um, that tells you how severe heat waves have been in in different parts of the world. Um, So yeah, we haven't monitored these reefs and that's also why it's important to kind of step up our research, but it doesn't mean that those reefs will be in a fantastic condition. Uh, Most likely we will find reefs in great conditions, but we'll probably also find a lot of reefs that are in terrible conditions.
0: Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it goes back to your point that we definitely need to do a lot more in terms of um, uh, funding, right, for coral reef investigation, conservation, you know, all of that. Um, Let's just go for one quick break, guys. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about that article that you wrote for uh, Makaranga, uh, Sebastian, and the one where you have some suggestions of, you know, how we can save our coral reefs. I'm speaking today to Sebastian Saradoy and Natasha Zulaika. They are co-founders of Coral Coup. It's another episode of the ABCs of Biodiversity, and we're talking about coral reefs today. We'll have more. After one more quick break, you're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Julia Jacobs. Joining me today are Sebastian Saradoy and Natasha Zuleika. They are the co-founders of Coral Coup. It's another episode of the ABCs of Biodiversity, our ongoing series where we explore why biodiversity loss is our loss. Today, we're exploring why coral reefs are so important. And, uh, you know, guys, before the two breaks, you know, you were explaining the threats, you were explaining, you know, why they're so important. Um... And I I guess, you know, you're helping us to understand that, you know, the decline of coral reefs really has severe ecological and economic consequences. Um, How does one even put
1: a value on coral reefs? So being in conservation, a part of our job is to kind of, you know, speak different languages. And if we try to speak the business language and put monetary value onto coral reefs, um, the Department of Fisheries has actually um, published that a fraction of the coral reefs in Malaysia generate about 8.7 billion ringgit annually from ecosystem services such as coastal protection and also tourism and also fishing. And this is a bit interesting now because people are starting to see on the news, um, people are saying that there's less fish now, there's gonna be a fish shortage and what are we gonna do? Um, But if we want to speak in also a more socio-economic sense, then um, more than 1 billion people depend on coral reefs too. So the value of coral reefs here really depends on who you're speaking to. But if we look at the different prospects, I I would say that it's it's pretty out there monetary-wise or even just socially and culturally. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And... If we had to put a value on it what would,
1: what would that value be <laughs> I mean I have a bit biased, if you're honest with
2: me <laughs> yeah. okay. invaluable immeasurable Invaluable Yeah, okay. yeah.
1: Right. you can't but put
2: a price on it yeah. I, I, just... I think I think I think there was a study uh, a few years ago that put a global value of, of the world's quarries um, on on 36 billion US dollars Okay um, worldwide, but um, a few people have contested the number, and they are stating that if you really factor in, just to put, just to give a concrete example, um, coastal protection. If you would take out the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, which is more than two thousand kilometers, then you would have to have something else to protect the coast from um, um, storms and and floodings. Um, and if the Australian government would have to do that, it would cost the Australian government trillions. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 very difficult to measure it so that's why i'm saying it's measurable but it's definitely very high okay
0: right, I hear you loud and clear. And um, Sebastian, you know, uh, in that article that you wrote for Makaranga, which I mentioned at the start of this interview, you pointed out that the latest IPCC report suggests that the coming eight to 10 years are very much our last chance to save coral reefs in Malaysia and also elsewhere. You've outlined some solutions and we want to talk about solutions, right? Can you walk me through uh, what it is that we need to do?
2: Yes. So first of all, we really need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions as fast and as drastic as possible. And this is not just to save our beloved reefs, but in Malaysia in particular, climate change will result in a lot of economic damage um, that will climb into into staggeringly high number. I wrote that also into the Makaranga piece, but also because of those damages, the economy will also shrink. So there will be costs, losses, and a shrinking economy. And on top of that, obviously, we have seen a lot of floods here in Malaysia,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, diseases will spread m- more easily. So that's also something that I think we are more concerned about today after two years of the global pandemic. Um, so it is 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 first and foremost to reduce those emissions because that is really what we need to do and that's also what the scientists all say there's no debating between the scientists it's a it's a sort of a common sense thing to do right now and everything else would kind of just not deliver that desired solution, really so, um, things like carbon storage and trading carbon stocks and whatnot. We will need everything really in this fight, but reducing emissions is most important. But then on top of that, we also need to step up protection. Um, in Malaysia, if I would be critical a bit, the government has actually gazetted a lot of areas as marine parks, and they are protected from overfishing Well, you can't fish in marine parks at all. Um, You're not allowed to jet ski. You're not allowed to drop anchors. But to be fair, enforcement could be a lot better. Just today, I saw on social media how a huge ghost net in Tiuman has actually killed a couple of endangered sea turtles and was wrapped up on the reef. It happens almost every week um, somewhere in Malaysia. Um, So there's a greater need for enforcement and protection of those reefs that are still left. And um, one thing that is becoming more clear is that reefs um, will not survive if we don't do if we don't intervene um, at all. So what, but what I mean by that is if I go back to my earlier point when I said that even if we would stop right now to emit all those greenhouse gas emissions, the oceans would sort of suck up what's in the atmosphere, which would continue the heating, and that heating would continue to decimate coral reefs. So right now, just my belief, it's my personal opinion, but I I think a lot of scientists out there share it too, is that only those reef sites will actually um, sort of stand a chance to survive that are well managed. So that means where human impact is basically minimal or not even present. So I'm speaking about things like a sewage discharge from beach resorts, for instance, or overfishing um, and and you know things like ghost nets uh, entangling so fishing nets discarded fishing nets entangling themselves on the reef and you know breaking a few fifty maybe a hundred corals at a time so that is also something that um, needs to completely be eliminated um, and then if we actually we have some really um, sort of positive research coming out from various locations. That kind of also showed that within the same reef, you would have one species. Just let's just take one species, and one individual of that species is totally bleached during a marine heat wave. And right next to it is the same species and is not bleached. And these scientists have actually figured out that there is a huge difference in how much um, heat one core individual can take. And that difference is up to almost three degrees. Um, for instance, in the Red Sea. um, So this data is coming from the Red Sea. So what we need to do as a solution, we need to find um, those corals and we need to understand what causes that tolerance. And if we managed to reduce greenhouse gases um, drastically and if we managed to eliminate sort of all local impacts on the reef, and then we could actually talk about, okay, going out there, finding those tolerant corals, um, sort of uh, growing them in coral nurseries and use them to restore reefs, which is something that uh, in terms of research we will start uh, doing um, a bit later this year. And ultimately we need to just um, focus more on local concerns. We need to address the needs of, of local villages um, because many of these locations in Peninsula Malaysia, they are kampungs. Mm. And those people that would like to fish, and I completely agree with that sentiment. So that needs, um, someone needs to address that a lot more than currently. There are um, some projects out there happening which kind of work with the local communities in terms of co-management, and, and that's fantastic. Um, that's very great and, and it's encouraging to see as well. And ultimately, all stakeholders need to contribute. Um, We work with a resort, and the resort has been very generous uh, in handing out um, rooms for us and providing us meals and scuba tanks and diving boats. But talking to colleagues and other people in in Malaysia who do the sort of the same work or similar work, they, they don't have that privilege. They need to pay for every tank they use. And to me, this is a bit, I I do understand, but also really don't understand because resorts are the first to profit from corals and also the first to suffer. And I've been in the Maldives where each and every resort island had a resident marine biologist center. And it was kind of sort of a demand from the the tourist to see that the resort actually cares about the environment. So I think the resorts need to sort of urgently step up and start doing the same and really have a team of fairly qualified biologists on site actually working for the resort and helping to restore their local patch or manage their local impacts or do both because that could actually make a, a create a difference in terms of scale because as an organization you can't really focus on every single area but if all the results would do it we are also present on these islands and are very close to the corals then, then that would really um, turn turn things around, or at least it would sort of sort of halt and break the decline. And and it would also be a great experience for the tourists to learn more about it, to be involved. It would be something positive, and people would start to understand the issues more, and perhaps value um, it more as well, and be willing to pay more to go on scuba dives that um, are focused on great coral reef sites and they want to see beautiful reefs and everybody wants to see marine life so um yeah that's something that we we should do um drastically and urgently i, I guess these are my my first points and um i could think of a lot more but <laughs> i think if we just start doing this then then that would be that would be a fantastic
0: Okay. And of course, Karel Koo is, you know, trying to make these uh, solutions, these, these suggestions of solutions a reality, right? How are you guys trying to do that?
2: Well, yeah, we've, we have our own share of struggle trying to achieve those solutions because obviously we are, we are small and we need to fight just to be able to to do our projects. But what we are trying to do is we do a lot of in-house science. So we spoke about the lack of data, the fact that reefs are not monitored and um, about the impacts of these bleaching events on corals. So we have done all of that. Um, We have written it up. We are very close in publishing that in scientific journals as well. And now for us, the next step is to really, um, to kind of go back out there and find those heat tolerant corals. So that's the collaboration with, with some researchers from Germany, and uh, with UM as well, so it's a three-party, a three-way party, and, and we're trying to look into thermal tolerance on site and trying to find out how we can use that for our restoration purposes. So that that goes into the direction of resilience-based um, core restoration, but also um, what we are ever more looking into is to work more closely with the resort. Um, Because the resort is there and they can, they're helping us a lot. And they also need to see that they are benefiting from, from, from us. Because they want to see people coming and say, hey, I want to know about corals. I want to plant corals. I want to do something with the reef. And because that is what's going to turn them around and, and step up even more. Because that resort, I really need to applaud them. They have done a lot in recent time to improve the mentality of their staff and to improve um, sort of their own practices. So they're very, they're very upset about um, illegal fishing in the area, for instance, and always um, call the local um, Marine Park Department to report the fishing. And that's great because even if we are not on site, they always do it. But those are the two things that I hope that we can sort of scale up, that we can plant more corals and also corals that we know that are more heat tolerant, but also work with more people and also people who are not scientists or who are not necessarily involved in any conservation or whatsoever but people who come there as tourists and they want to have a great vacation and they might be eager to learn and contribute back and because that's also something that's very important in our mission and a lot more but uh, these two are definitely the, the major goals at this moment
1: yeah but if i could like add on just a little bit on that i feel like our presence on social media is also quite an important one as the work like sebastian said the work that we do is a lot of in-house data and as we produce this knowledge i feel that it needs to be translated to the greater public and we can do so through social media so i'm still quite a believer of you know translating science into uh, knowledge that is consumed by people. And then that way we generate this interest of, you know, people who love to go on beach vacations, people who love these Instagrammable sites to be like, oh, right, I do have to care a bit about the environment. So that is our main role on social media as well. And of course, interviews like these, you know, reaching out to people that we can't, um, we, we don't really have, the capacity to find on that little island stranded in Changanyu. And so <laughs> yeah, th- this is one of the 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 solutions that we're trying to kind of share with other people as well. Yeah, just
0: just getting that mass reach isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, um, yeah
1: exactly. And Sebastian,
0: you know, I mean, we're running out of time, but just very quickly, you know, you also wrote in that article that I mentioned that you're very deeply concerned about the lack of action, management and funding for the conservation of coral reefs. What would you like to see happen with regard to these sorts of issues? Whew,
2: um, <laughs>
1: money, money, money. <laughs> yes, Make it I would, I
2: would. So coral reef science is some of the most underfunded science Um, You could find like there's only there's only a handful of countries that have a great funding scheme for quarries. But I would what I would really like to see is just that that the government steps in and says, okay we don't really have the capacity perhaps or maybe even the proficiency Mm -hmm. to deliver this sophisticated science like finding heat tolerant corals. But they should say, okay we need to do this. Right now, and all across peninsula, and they sort of need to create an umbrella and bring together the people who could contribute from the various locations. And there is, there are people out there who could, uh, you know, step up, maybe be trained. Um, some don't need training at all, and we could then step by step um, produce at least the data that could translated to greater policy, policy for enforcement um, or um, policy and data for restoration. So that's something they need to do, but they also need to be a lot more stringent about things like illegal fishing. Um, Because in places like Langtinga, we don't have a Marine Park um, office department. They're actually a couple of kilometers away on on Pulau Redang. And um, so when we report illegal fishing, it, it is very hard for them to reach the time or for them to reach at all. And that's something that really needs to change. And there are so many things that could really make a difference. Um, I spoke about these discarded fishing nets. Like that just really needs to stop right now. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there, there shouldn't be a compromise. But also what the government could actually quite easily do um, is to send out a team to water, to monitor water quality year in and year, maybe three times a year, and just to send them to these islands. And the results are actually, if it's the government, they actually always say like, hey, uh, sure, come, I sponsor your room. So it's also not, it wouldn't come at the huge cost. And because if we at least have that data to understand how bad pollution from things like sewage discharge is, then we could factor that in, but we don't have that data. and. As small nonprofits or NGOs or scientists in UM or UMT or wherever that are already busy with just doing their daily work and administration and university students and whatnot, um, they don't have the time to do everything. So we at least where we can benefit from from a more coordinated plan of attack sort of would be to to sort of get everyone together and make up a plan and really go out there and do the best we can. And we need to talk a lot more about climate change. It's it's still, people are sort of, they hear it all the time, but they also don't hear it enough, I think, because we are still not taking enough actions, not just in Malaysia, but everywhere else. Um, So yeah, we need more funding. We need more coordinated research and coordinated plans on how to enforce and implement the knowledge that we have and if we would all get together, I think we could achieve that um fairly, fairly reasonably soon, I would say. Okay.
0: All right. Uh, any last message that you'd like to leave us with? Uh, any any quick one? Sorry, we're running out of time. But yeah, anything, oh, any last okay. message you'd like to leave I'll, us with?
2: I'll
1: make a quick one. So basically, running as a social enterprise, we can't do our work without public support or others who feel that this is just as important as it is. So if you do love the ocean, if you love your beach holidays, your Instagrammable sites, well, don't forget what's underneath the water, which is coral <laughs> reefs. And, you know, you can support us. You can support us by adopting a coral, uh, use it as a birthday gift or as an anniversary, or just simply to make anyone smile, because this will help us to do our work for the coral reefs and in Pulau Lantengah. And our tagline is Coral Ku, Coral Mujua. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I my message would, would right add on to that, because... I would like to say, don't isolate yourself. So if you're hearing the show today, then don't take yourself out of the problem because we are kind of all part of the problem, just as everybody had to contribute a bit during the pandemic. We all kind of contribute to climate change. So we also have to contribute to solutions. So join us, be with us, um, support us, vote green, vote for the climate, and just don't continue in isolation. And step out because I think um, collectively we have better chances to turn things around.
0: All right. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Sebastian Ceradoi and also Natasha Zuleika. They are co-founders of Coral Coup. If you'd like to find out more about Coral Coup, just head to their website. It's coralku.org. That's C-O-R-A-L-K-U dot O-R-G. And if you miss any part of today's interview, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my slash earth, or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9.